During his final year of school, the French philosopher Luc Ferry asked his teacher, what is philosophy? And the teacher gave the expected answer. The word philosophy means love of wisdom. So philosophy is the pursuit of wisdom, the art of reflection, the formation of a critical and independent spirit. But as Luke Ferry continued to think about this, he realized that that answer is not quite right. And he went on to provide a rather thought-provoking alternative. He says, philosophy, the purpose of philosophy, is to provide salvation. He writes, to live well, therefore to live freely, capable of joy, generosity, and love, we must first and foremost conquer our fear of death, or more accurately, our fears of the irreversible. All philosophies, however divergent they may sometimes be in the answers they bring, promise us an escape from primitive fears. The quest for a salvation without God is at the heart of every great philosophical system, and that is its essential and ultimate objective. The quest for a salvation without God is at the heart of every great philosophical system. So what is he trying to say? He says that we as human beings are the only creatures that are aware of the fact that we are going to die and that we will lose the ones that we love the most. And we cannot avoid thinking about this disturbing state of affairs. And so the very purpose of philosophy is to help us overcome our fear of death. As Montaigne famously put it, echoing the words of Cicero and Socrates before him, to be a philosopher is to learn how to die. The fact is that the reality of death forces us to pose the very question, what is a good life? So Ferry elsewhere writes this, it is because we are destined to die and we know it, because we will lose those who are dear to us, that the question of the good life, of what is truly worthwhile in this existence and not in another, deserves to be posed. We're in the midst of a series in which we are exploring that very question, what is the good life? We've been examining how do we live a truly worthwhile existence through a close reading of the David story. And today we bring that series to a conclusion by turning our attention to David's death, because it's true. We can never truly learn how to live the good life until we overcome our fear of death. And 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2 reveal to us three wrong ways to approach death and one right way. So let me invite you to open up a Bible to 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2. You'll find this passage printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading 1 Kings chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 and 11 through 13 and chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. You'll find the passage beginning on page 279 of the Pew Bible. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. 
Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why, then, is Adonijah king? When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Well, despite the glory days of David's youth, his final days end in conflict and in chaos. And 1 Kings chapter 1 shows us how three different groups of people approach David's impending death in all the wrong ways. Some treat his death as a problem to be solved. Others as an opportunity to be seized. And then finally, those considered to be merely a duty to be fulfilled. So first of all, David's servants treat his death as a problem to be solved. And it's understandable. Their job was to serve the king. And as he grows old and advanced in years, they do the one thing that they know how to do. They assume that it's their responsibility to keep David alive for as long as possible. And they do it any way they can. First, they try piling clothes on top of David. But no matter how many blankets cover him, they just can't find a way to keep him warm. And so they resort to a stranger tactic. They say, well, let's find a beautiful young woman who will serve the king. And they land on Abishag the Shunammite. Maybe that will help. Now, I'm not exactly sure where they got this idea. Perhaps this came from some kind of Canaanite fertility cult or something like that. But the logic seems to be, if David could prove his virility, well then maybe that'll get him back on his feet again. But it doesn't work. And verse 4 flatly tells us that the king did not know this beautiful young woman. Robert Alter, the Hebrew scholar from Berkeley, describes the scene. This extraordinary portrait of a human life working itself out in the gradual passage of time, which began with an agile, daring, and charismatic young David, now shows him in the extreme infirmity of old age, shivering in bed beneath his covers. David, lying in bed with this desirable young virgin, but now beyond any thought or capacity of sexual consummation, is, of course, a sad image of infirm old age. Now, what I find interesting about all of this is that the servants treat David's death as a problem to be solved, and that remains a rather contemporary way of addressing death as well. They might go to extreme lengths to try to keep David alive by securing the help of Abishag the Shunammite, but we also go to rather extreme lengths 
to keep people alive today, too. As modern people, we invest a whole lot of time and energy and money trying to avoid thinking about death altogether. And it's possible for us to lull ourselves into thinking that we'll live forever. One person once said to me, you never really think it's going to happen to you until it does. And we live in denial about death just as much as ancient people did, perhaps more so. Rather than allowing people to die in the comfort of their homes surrounded by family and friends, we seek ever greater measures to keep people alive, often isolated and alone in hospitals. And it may actually be worse among religious people. There was a recent study conducted at Harvard University that has shown that people of faith are more likely to choose aggressive forms of life support and to die in ICUs at the hospital than under hospice care at home. Now, why might that be? Well, it could be that the zeal of religious people to put their faith in God and to believe in miracles inadvertently causes us to choose unhelpful treatments that prolong suffering. But why? Because we are desperately attempting to avoid death. Desperately attempting to avoid it. The only difference between us and David's servants is that we've got more choices. We've got more medical options, more technology at our disposal, which allows us to deny death and to distract ourselves from caring for the dying. So David's servants treat death as a problem to be solved. His son, Adonijah, treats death as an opportunity to be seized. Adonijah was the oldest surviving son of David, and he's next in line. But from his point of view, David is taking far too long to die. And Adonijah is growing impatient. He sees David as blocking him from securing his future. As long as David is alive, he will never be able to experience the thrill of being the king. And so he decides to take matters into his own hands. In verse 5, he exalts himself and he says, I will be king. And he secures the support of two important allies, Joab, the commander, and Abiathar, the priest. He raises an army and proclaims himself king. But he will later be exposed as an opportunist and a usurper. And that eventually is what will result in his own untimely death. See, the problem is that Adonijah, rather than honoring his father, treats him as if he were already dead. He's not unlike the younger brother in Jesus' famous parable of the prodigal, who demands that his father give his share of the inheritance before his father's even died. And that's another unhealthy way in which people today approach death. We see it as an opportunity to, to grab or to grasp. Rather than caring for the person who's dying, we want to shove them out of the way in order to either get on with our lives or to get what's ours. So we, like Adonijah, are opportunists. So if the servants see the problem, see his death as a problem to be solved, and if Adonijah sees David's death as an opportunity to be seized, Bathsheba sees his death as a duty to be fulfilled. Now, her response is not entirely wrong, 
but it is a little bit less than satisfactory, and here's why. The prophet Nathan comes to Bathsheba and tells her that Adonijah has seized the throne, and she better do something about it, because David apparently had promised her that her son, Solomon, would be the one who would succeed David. And so she goes to see David in order to set things straight. And it's a good thing that she did, because David is neglecting his kingly duty. He hasn't written out his will. And if David dies, well, then he is going to leave, quite literally, a royal mess behind. And so it's a good thing that she steps in and gets involved. She does what needs to be done. Now, the problem with Bathsheba is not that she took responsibility and fulfilled her duty. The problem is that was all she did. That was all she did. She wasn't there by David's side. The only reason why she approaches the deathbed is not to comfort her dying husband, but rather to put his affairs in order. And there's something, therefore, lacking in her response. And that, too, is a contemporary way of approaching death. There are things that need to be done, but sometimes we focus on tasks for the dying in order to avoid the dying. So though this story is 3,000 years old, it's striking to me how much it resonates with our own responses to death in the modern world. We approach it as a problem to be solved or an opportunity to be seized or a duty merely to be fulfilled. And why is that? Why do we deny the reality of death? Why do we distract ourselves from thinking about it? Why do we grasp at straws in order to try to keep people alive? Or why do we grab at money or power or position? Or why do we merely do our duty towards the dying and nothing more? Well, the answer is simple. We're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid of death, and therefore we deny it and distract ourselves from thinking about it. The English writer... Julian Barnes wrote a humorous and witty memoir on our mortality entitled, Nothing to be Frightened of. And he opens this book with these famous lines, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. He says that he never had a faith to lose. The only thing that he ever lost was the idea of God. But isn't that an interesting way to put it? I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I miss the idea of God, especially when it comes to confronting the reality of death. A friend once asked him, how often do you think about death and under what circumstances? At least once each waking day, I replied. And then there are the intermittent nocturnal attacks. Mortality often gatecrashes my consciousness when the outside world presents an obvious parallel as evening falls, as the days shorten or towards the end of a long day's hiking. In another place, he says, but it's a subject one can write about, at least. I remember once waking up in the middle of the night in a sort of screaming panic about the thought of inevitable and eternal annihilation of the self and thinking, well, at least you can write about it. I can probably get a paragraph or two out of this. Now, what Julian Barnes is doing is essentially offering an updated contemporary spin on ancient philosophy. He says that death is nothing to be frightened of, and yet the fact is, he's terrified about it. And so what does he do? Well, the only thing he can do is write about it in response. Well, maybe I can get a paragraph or two out of considering my mortality. 
That's the best he can do. And the ancient Greeks basically said, the fear of death fills us with anxiety and dread. And that's what prevents us from living life well. We can't live it happily, joyfully, freely. The only way to live the good life is to overcome our fear. And how do we do that? Well, the philosopher basically says that you can think your way through death. Philosophy tells you you can save yourself by relying on your reason alone. So what does the philosopher say? Philosopher says, if you're worried about death, it means that you're thinking. And if you're thinking, that means you're alive. And that's a good thing. When you're dead, there will be no you left to worry about it. And therefore, death will no longer be an issue for you. So just go along and live your life. Now, at first, that seems rather convincing, doesn't it? When you're dead, there will be no you left to worry about it. So death will not be an issue for you. But there's just one little problem with the philosopher's argument. How does the philosopher know that when you die, there's no you left to worry about it? How does the philosopher know that when you die, you lose not just your body, but also your soul, your individual identity, your consciousness, that you become just a, a fragment within the universe? Has the philosopher died and come back to life to tell us? What if the philosopher is wrong? You see, as much as philosophy tries to tell us that we can overcome our fear by thinking our way through death, it ultimately doesn't work. Now, Julian Barnes called himself an atheist in his 20s. He referred to himself as an agnostic in his 50s and 60s, but that's not because he felt that he had acquired more knowledge, but rather because he became more aware of how little we know. He writes, if I called myself an atheist at 20 and an agnostic at 50 and 60, it isn't because I've acquired more knowledge in the meantime, just more awareness of ignorance. How can we be sure we know enough to know? We hold ourselves categorically wiser than those credulous knee-benders, religious people, who a speck of time away believed in divine purpose, an ordered world, resurrection, and a last judgment. But although we are more informed, we are no more evolved and certainly no more intelligent than them. What convinces us that our knowledge is so final? Later he goes on to say, a common response in surveys of religious attitudes is to say something like, I don't go to church, but I have my own personal idea of God. This kind of statement makes me in turn react like a philosopher. Soppy, I cry. You may have your own personal idea of God, but does God have his own personal idea of you? Because that's what matters. Whether he's an old man with a white beard sitting in the sky, or a life force, or a disinterested prime mover, or a clockmaker, or a woman, or a nebulous moral force, or nothing at all. What counts is what he, she, it, or nothing thinks of you, rather than you of them. The notion of redefining the deity into something that works for us is grotesque. It also doesn't matter whether God is just or benevolent or even observant, of which there seems startlingly little proof, only that he exists. And I think Barnes is onto something there. What matters is not what you think of God, but what God thinks of you, and that's especially true when it comes to confronting death. So if those are three wrong ways to approach death, what's the right one? Ultimately, the philosophical path to salvation, overcoming the fear of death, 
by thinking our way through it doesn't work. We can't think our way through death. We need something more. We need something better. And that is what Christianity offers. There's a rather fascinating passage in chapter 2 of the letter to the Hebrews in which the author of Hebrews acknowledges what we all know, that the fear of death subjects us to lifelong slavery. The fear of death enslaves us. It imprisons us. It has a stranglehold over our hearts. It paralyzes us, cripples us, prevents us from truly being able to live life well. But he also acknowledges that you can't think your way through death. Given its power over us, you can only fight fire with fire. You can only fight death with death. He tells us that the only way to defeat death is through death. And that's precisely what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has done what no one else could do. Only a God can defeat death. Only a human can die. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus is the incarnate son. And Jesus becomes human. He takes on flesh and blood so that through death he might defeat death and deliver all those who had been held in lifelong slavery through the fear of death. Jesus is the only one who has died and come back to tell us how it really is. And that is what gives us hope. God vindicated Jesus' claims by raising him from the dead, and God has promised to do for us at the end of history what he did for Jesus in the very middle of history. He promises to raise us up with a new physical body to enjoy life in a new physical world with him. And that is what changes everything. And you can see why then Luke Ferry, this atheistic French philosopher, acknowledges that ancient Greek philosophy didn't stand a chance against the rise of Christianity because Christianity offers everything that we could have hoped for and more. The immortality of the human person and the salvation of those we love the most. Many of us could probably come to grips with the idea of our own death, our own annihilation, but what we can't bear the thought of is that we would be separated forever from the ones we love the most. We want to be reunited somehow with their faces, with their voices, with their touch. And Christianity says we can. Christianity says that you will not lose your individual identity in the cosmic abyss. No, you will get your body back better than before. And in Jesus Christ, you need not be separated from those you love. No, in Christ, you will see that smile. You will hear that laugh. You will feel that embrace. And you will not watch this world be destroyed by sin and evil. No, you will see it renewed in the justice, peace, and love of God. The beginning is here. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the beginning of the new creation, and the best is yet to come. And even Luke Ferry will say that this promise, the Christian hope, is not superficial, but rather it is part of a coherent intellectual framework that is rooted in love and the resurrection of the body, and it has profound significance for us all. So when you lay hold of this ultimate hope by faith in Jesus, it changes how you approach death. You no longer have to fear it. You no longer have to avoid it. You no longer have to deny it. You no longer have to distract yourselves from thinking about it. You can face it. You can face it, even in the midst of your grief. Because as the Apostle Paul said, 
We do not grieve as those who have no hope. No, we grieve in hope. Many of you may know Lydia Dugdale, who is a physician, as well as a medical ethicist who lives and works here in New York. She runs the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at Columbia. And not long ago, she wrote a book entitled The Lost Art of Dying, which was inspired by two medieval texts written in the wake of the Black Plague, referred to as the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying. And these books written in the late Middle Age, late Middle Ages were written to help the living prepare for a good death. And Lydia Dugdale suggests that we need to recover this lost art in our modern times because our culture has over-medicalized death. Our deaths now are so often institutional, sterile, and lonely. But she believes that part of living well means preparing for the end. And how do we do that? By recognizing our finitude and our morality by confronting our fears, and by developing meaningful ways in order to die well in the community with others. And so this is what she writes. To mitigate the possibility of the lonely death, the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying, provided specific instructions to community members. Family and friends were to gather at the bedside and broach the uncomfortable subject of death. No one was allowed to offer false hope about recovery from illness. Community members were to encourage the dying to repent of sin. In fact, so the logic went, it was better for the dying to fear for their physical well-being and turn to God than to believe that they are healed and ignore their souls. Community members were exhorted to pray for and read religious texts to the dying. Even if you weren't especially close to the person who was dying, the Ors Moriendi suggested you had a role to play too. Well, despite many missteps and false starts, David at least finally begins to figure out how to die well in the end. By the time we turn to 1 Kings chapter 2, Bathsheba has sorted things out, and she has established Solomon on David's throne. And David now knows that his time is at hand. His time to die has drawn near. And now Solomon is there by his side. He's not alone. Solomon, his son, is there. And David doesn't deny or distract. He acknowledges to his son that he is about to go the way of all the earth. And then he charges his son to remain faithful to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul. Knowing that if his son is faithful, that there will never be a time where an heir does not sit on his throne. You see, David dies in hope he dies in hope that God will keep the promise made to him that he will establish his throne forever. But what I want you to see here is that we are in a far, far better position. We're in a much better position than David ever was because we know how God fulfills this promise. We know that Solomon is not the ultimate son of David. No, Jesus is. Jesus is the one who reigns forever because God has raised him from the dead. Death does not have a hold on him. And so we have far more reason to die in hope than David ever did. Some of you may know that after a two-and-a-half-year battle with a very aggressive form of leukemia, my mother-in-law, Pat Johnson, died on August 28th this past summer. Pat was an incredibly thoughtful and loving 
mother-in-law. She was far more kind to me than I ever deserved. I don't recall her ever speaking a harsh word to me. She was deeply supportive of me, of our marriage, and of our ministry. I think she listened to every sermon, perhaps twice. And if you know Pat, you knew that she never met a stranger. So any Sunday that she came to visit, she probably met more people than I ever did. And everyone who loved Pat knew that she possessed a deep, abiding faith in Jesus. She could constantly be found reading her Bible, listening to sermons, participating in a Bible study over Zoom or in person, and she was memorizing scripture up until the very final end of her life. We would find little index cards with scripture verses on them in all the places where she liked to sit, on the bedside table or next to the armchair. And despite all the many challenges that she faced, she remained one of the most positive, one of the most loving, one of the most upbeat and encouraging people I've ever met in my life. And it was all because of her faith. You see, Pat did not have this vague and fuzzy sense that maybe things would turn out all right in the end. No, Pat possessed the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. She knew that just as God had raised Jesus with a new physical body to a whole new mode of existence, so God would raise her with a new physical body to a whole new mode of existence. The only concern that she had as she approached her final days was with the gap. The gap between the moment we die and the day that Jesus returns to raise us up with him. And so we talked about that during our final moments together. Where is Pat now? And we talked about how the moment that we die, our bodies rest in the grave. But we ourselves are immediately with the Lord. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians chapter 1, my desire is to depart, to die, and to be with Christ, because that's far better. And yet he knew that more than likely he would remain on for a longer period of time because his ministry was not yet done. But that's also why when the thief who was crucified next to Jesus turns to Jesus and asks him, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus responds by saying, truly I say to you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. And there's no better place to be. So our bodies rest in the grave, but we ourselves are with the Lord until that final resurrection. And Pat and I talked about the passage in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus goes to the home of a man named Jairus whose daughter has died. And everyone is trying to tell him to, to give up and go away because she's dead. And he brushes them aside and goes into the room where this little girl lies. And then he takes her by the hand, and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And then she wakes up. And I think that episode is included in the Gospels because that is the way that Christians are supposed to approach death. Our bodies rest in the grave. We ourselves are with the Lord, awaiting that final day of the resurrection. And if we are united to Jesus by faith, then we can have absolute confidence that one day he will take us by the hand and he'll say, little one, it's time to get up. And everything that ever, had ever happened to us in the past, anything tragic and sad, it'll just be like a bad dream from which we will wake up. Now, Pat at this point was very weak 
But as we talked through these things, she cracked a little smile and gave me a thumbs up and said, that is very reassuring. And it absolutely is. But you see, this is what we need. And that is the hope that Pat died with. Ashley, my wife, and her sister Emily were with their mother until the very, very end. And on that evening of August 28th, even though she was no longer speaking, it seemed as if she was sleeping and not even conscious, suddenly Ashley and Emily realized that she understood everything that was happening. And so Ashley and Emily proceeded to pray again over her and to read her scripture verses. And she knew what her favorite verses were because they had been written on all these index cards all over the house. And then they began singing to Pat her favorite hymns, Amazing Grace, How Great Thou Art, It Is Well. And so Pat dies with her two daughters singing the gospel to her. And the final words ring in her ears as she went to be with the Lord came from the old hymn, Be Still My Soul. Be still my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still my soul when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. The only way to live the good life is to first figure out how to die the good death. And try as we might, philosophy is not going to get us there. We cannot think our way through death. The only way to die well is to die in the Lord. You have to embrace the one and only one who truly provides salvation. And that's not philosophy. That's Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that we spend so much of our time and energy and effort and money trying not to think about death. We're afraid of it. We avoid it. We deny it. We distract ourselves from thinking about it. But help us, Father, to lay hold of the ultimate Christian hope that is made possible through Jesus so that we can face it, even in our grief. And therefore, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Help us to cling to you, Father, to die a good death so that we might live the good life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.